Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Thank you, Annie. Good morning, family. So this is our fifth sermon on Colossians. I hope you guys are enjoying the series because um, five sermons in and we're still just in the first half of the first chapter. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're still going to be enjoying this uh, for a while. And um, those of you who've been reading along, I'm sure you've seen that it's quite dense. So this, um, this morning's passage is actually the same one that we had last week when Mezen was preaching. So it's um, Colossians chapter 1 from verse 9. And... Uh, Yeah, if we can just start by reading that. There we go. And so, from the day we heard, what did the Apostle Paul hear? He heard about, verse 4, your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So what we saw before is how Paul heard from another brother, Epaphras, how the Christians in Colossae, how they heard the gospel and how they embraced it and how there's been fruit of that faith in their love and their faithfulness, and just how they've really embraced um, the gospel and one another. All right, let's, let's keep reading now that we have a little bit of context. You say, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, keep your finger there because we're going to be looking at this passage. There's a lot in here. It's quite dense. Right? So we're going to be referring back all the time. But Let's, um, we're just gonna, I'm just going to walk it through. And first thing to notice here is this is a prayer, right? Paul is praying, and if he was praying for us, this is what he would be praying for, right? When, when you pray for someone, you're asking for the best for that person, right? You're asking, Lord, you know, please help them at their work. You know, please help them in their family. Please give them wisdom for this decision. You know, when you're asking God, for something in prayer, you're really desiring the, the best for the object that you're praying for, right? For the person or the church that you're praying for. And so Paul is praying this, and this is the prayer. These, these are the things that he's asking for. And, you know, Paul was really a man, and we can see it from his life, that was absolutely saturated with the gospel, right? His life was completely turned around by the gospel, and this is what he's praying for. And I think just based on that, we can learn a lot from him and from what he's praying for. Now, 
let's just quickly state a few obvious things, right? This is a prayer. Prayer, it implies that it's God's work, right? This is not something that you can achieve for yourself, but it's we're, we're asking God to achieve this in us, right? Also, it's a prayer. It's something that's not automatic, right? If, if we automatically got this fruit in our lives, Paul wouldn't need to pray for it, right? If believers immediately upon believing in Jesus got this, there's no point in praying. And then notice that he says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased praying for you. In other words, he's been praying the same prayer for a long time, and he's still praying it, and he's carrying on praying it, and now he's finally writing this letter to the Colossians, and he's saying, oh, by the way, this is what I've been praying for you ever since Epaphras told me about you. And so if Paul has to pray for it continuously, it means that it's progressive, right? It's something that that grows in our lives, just as we saw in a previous week how the gospel um, has been growing and bearing fruit, Paul is also praying that we'll grow and bear fruit, and it's an ongoing thing, right? So let's look a little bit at the content of the prayer. Paul is asking that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this is the main thing of this prayer that Paul is asking for is that we'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will, right? So what is the knowledge of God's will? Not merely knowing God's laws. You know? It's not merely saying, all right, these are the Ten Commandments and I need to know it. It's, it's much more than that. It's knowing how to deal with every situation, right? Notice how Paul is asking that there must be spiritual wisdom and understanding of God's will. In other words, he's praying that we'll know how to respond in the 99% of situations where the rules don't apply, right? That's wisdom. Wisdom is going beyond just knowing these are the rules and going to, but I know how to apply it in this situation where, where it's not obvious what the rules are, right? And with that understanding. So Paul is, is asking that that we grow, right? So when you first, when you first uh, start teaching a child, you say to the child, this is my will, do this, don't do that. I'll stop doing this, right? I'm, how many parents are saying, stop that, stop that, right? We're teaching the child our will. And the child doesn't necessarily understand why we say, you know, don't do this, don't pull your sister's hair, whatever it is, right? (laughs) But over time, as we grow, as the child grows up, the child grows in understanding your will, and they start to understand why it is that you are asking them to, to do things in a certain way. And so over time, even when you're not there, the child will know how you would expect them to respond. And the same thing, this is what Paul is praying is that we'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will in this way, that we'll grow in it and really learn how to respond in every situation according to his will, right? And notice also it says spiritual wisdom and understanding. So understanding, that's our part, right? We 
we apply our minds, we think, we meditate, we, we study the Bible. But then on top of that, there's the spiritual wisdom. So the Holy Spirit enabling us to understand the law of God, to understand the Bible, the gospel especially, right? Not only our natural understanding, but over and above that by the empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives, right? So it's, it's not the one or the other, right? It's not sitting, meditating, and suddenly it hits you and you have this enormous revelation. It's a combination of meditating on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit enabling us to understand it and to, to read the Bible and to understand the gospel properly. Okay. And then Paul says that when we understand it, it is so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, the outcome of understanding God's will is that we should walk worthy of Him. Right? So when the Bible speaks about walking, right, and you'll see this everywhere, the Bible often talks about our lives as walking, right? Walking is, is what you do continuously, right? Um, especially in an era before automobiles and aeroplanes and things, wherever you wanted to be, you had to walk there. A lot of life was spent walking. And walking is, you know, it's rhythmic. It's one foot in front of the other over and over doing the same things. And so, when the Bible talks about walking, it's speaking about the things that we do over and over and how our lives go day by day, right? How you live your life every day is how you live your life. And so what Paul is praying for here is that as we learn to know the will of God and as we grow in wisdom understanding, our lives, every aspect of our lives will reflect his worth, right, will be in a way that is worthy of the Lord, that um, somehow corresponds to who he is and to his worth, his value, and that that will be reflected in how we live our lives. And um, I recently heard a very nice illustration of what it means to be worthy of someone else, and it's quite a famous story from the Second World War. During Germany's occupation of France, the French resistance started organizing, and they actually started carrying out assassinations on German officers. And so Hitler had a very brutal response on that, and he said, for every German that's killed in France, 50 members of the French resistance will be executed. And so one of these, after a quite a senior German officer was assassinated. They rounded up a group of um, French resistance fighters you know, out of the num- different prisons and camps where they were holding them. And one of them was a guy called Gilles Mouquet, who was a 17-year-old uh, boy. And he wrote a letter to his family that's now very famous. And in this letter, he has a, this line that says, Those of you who remain, be worthy of us. In other words, live your lives in such a way that it honors what we've done. That it honors how we have resisted, how we have laid down our lives. And yeah, he was among the 50 Frenchmen that were shot that day. 
So, getting back to, to the scripture, it, we'll keep going, keep walking through it. And he says that when we walk worthy of the Lord, it's to be fully pleasing to Him, fully pleasing to God. In other words, the outcome of knowing God's will is that we'll be fully pleasing to Him. In other words, not pleasing ourselves. Our goal as believers should not be to, to please ourselves, but to please God, right? And um, often, you know, we, we want to please God in some parts of our lives, but then in other parts we don't. You know, like, I want to please God, but this thing, you know, here I, I'm definitely still holding on, and, and I'm just like, God, you can have all of this, but please don't have that. Yeah? And so the outcome of knowing God's will is that we'll be able to fully please Him. We'll know that even in this area where we think we know better than God, we actually don't, and we'll learn why. You know, By understanding His will, we'll know why. So repenting and trusting God even in those areas is better. Right? It'll be better for us, and it'll be pleasing for God. And so we need to repent of every area of our life where we are still trying to, to please ourselves and trust Him. And, and we are able to do that as we grow in the knowledge of God's will. Right? And then the, the, the outcome of this, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So how do we live lives that are, that are fully pleasing to God? Well, there are two two outcomes of this, or two ways in which we are fully pleasing to Him. The one is a horizontal to man, and the other is a vertical to God. When we bear fruit, it's fruit of good works, right? Um, so, in the New Testament, there's, we, we often read about fruit in one of two ways. The one is growth in character, right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, becoming more patient, more loving, more kind, these kinds of things. And then there's the fruit of good works. Right? You, when you're reading in the New Testament, you see good works mentioned like showing hospitality, caring for the poor, you know, um, be helping, serving the saints. Whatever, whatever good work there is, these are material and physical things, right, that we do. And so Paul is saying that, as we get to know God better, and as we grow in, in knowing Him, the, the way we'll be pleasing Him will include practical service to others. It'll be normal, everyday, good works. And then we'll also increase in our knowledge of God. Right? And um, this is the kind of vertical. So getting to know God as we serve Him, you know, as we go out loving people as service to God, we'll also get to know Him in that process, right? When you're praying for someone else, you're also um, getting to know God better in the same process. Now, when you're going on an outreach or on a mission trip, you, know, you are serving and you're loving others, but in the same, at the same time, you are getting to know God better for yourself, right? And it's, this is relational knowing, right? This is not um, can you mention the Ten Commandments? But actually, do you know God personally? Right? 
knowing. In the, in the Bible, the idea of knowing someone often refers to an intimate relationship. Right? The, in Genesis, we read how Adam knew his wife, euphemistically referring to sexual intercourse. Right? How, how Adam knew his wife, and, and that, that's an intimate relationship. And so that's what, what we also learn as we get to know God better. We grow not only in a kind of academic knowledge of Him, but in actually experiential relationship, personal relationship with God. And we need both of these aspects. Right? There's, on, on the one side, there's the practical service. On the other side, there's knowing God. And sometimes, you know, we want to just focus on one or the other. Right? Sometimes a lot of people will want to do good. They want to, you know, do good things in the world, which is wonderful. But it can also be a way for us to, to stay away from God. It's like, God, I'm doing all these good things. I don't want to know anything about you. Right? It's a way for us to almost shield ourselves from God and remain our own masters. Right? God, no, no, I'm living a good life and I can carry on and I don't need you to, to interfere with me. Right? That's, the, that's the one extreme. On the other extreme is, no, I just want to know God. I just want to study the Bible, but I really don't want contact with other people. And so, you know, we try and make our, our relationship with God just purely personal, purely private, but that doesn't please God either. He wants our private relationship with Him to spill over into loving others and our serving of others to be because we know and love Him. And we need both, right, to serve God and to please Him. All right. But then the Bible is also very practical. Notice the next thing that Paul prays for. He says, I pray that you will be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Right? He acknowledges that living this kind of life is not something that's easy for us. Right? It's not something that comes natural to us, and we need God's strength. Right? We need Him to help us to, to live this out, and that we can't just do it based on our own strength, but we actually need His strength. Right? It's, it says that we are strengthened, not according to our own ability or trying harder or getting excited and, you know, working ourselves up, but according to His glorious might. In other words, the strength of which He strengthens us is coming from Him, not from ourselves. And we need that. We need it so badly. Uh, we were just talking this week in small group about how sometimes we know the truth of God in our heads, but in our hearts, it's still a struggle to, to really experience it or to, to actually take what we know and apply it in our lives. And we need strength. It takes strength to, you know, sometimes to lay down yourself, you know, to say sorry, to um, acknowledge that you don't have everything together. You know, it takes a lot of strength to live this kind of life that, that honors God or you know, like Esther was saying before, we know that the kids' church answer is always right. It's always, the answer is always Jesus. But to actually apply that to our lives is not something we can do in our own strength. 
And that's why Paul is asking that we'll be strengthened by God's might so that we can actually live this out and so that we can also repent, right? Because I need to face the fact that there's a gap between my life and God's standards, right? And, and I need God to, to help me to repent and to turn to Him so that we can bridge that gap between where I am and, and what God has called me to, to be, All right? So thank God for, for His strength. And then He says, I'm praying that you have the strength for endurance and patience with joy, right? As a believer, we need endurance, right? Following God, sometimes it gets hard and we need to be persistent and we need to continue in that way. If we try to do it in our own strength, we're basically just doing religion. And you can try to, to obey God in your own strength and maybe you'll be able to do it you know, a little bit here and there. You know, you'll be inconsistent in your obedience. You can, in your own ability, you can inconsistently obey God for a long time. Or maybe you can consistently obey Him for a short time, but you won't be able to consistently obey Him for a long time. And if, even if you somehow manage that, you definitely won't be doing it with joy. <laughs> right? You won't have the joy of knowing God if you're doing, trying to, to obey His law in your own strength. But when we, when we allow Him to strengthen us, when we allow Him to be the one that enables us to live this Christian life, then we can be joyful. In fact, the more we realize that it is Him working in us to be um, His disciples, to be His followers, the more joyful we'll become. The more we understand the gospel, the more joyful we'll become. And do you notice just the language that Paul is using here in, in this prayer? And I look at these words like, I'm praying that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom understanding. Fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work. Um, being strengthened with all power, all endurance, right? These are maximal terms. Like it's, it looks like Paul is praying for perfection, right? And, and what an amazing life it would be if, if my life looked like this, you know? Can you just imagine, like just take a moment and imagine what would my life look like if I had full knowledge of God's will, what would my life look like if I had all spiritual wisdom and understanding? If I had all strength, all endurance, you know, wouldn't, what would my life look like, right? Isn't this an amazing picture of the Christian life, right? And, and this is what Paul's praying for. He says, this is where we're going. This is what um, I'm asking God to achieve in us, right? And I don't know about you, but... I don't know anyone like this. I know some people who are more like this than others. <laughs> right? But I don't know anyone who is actually like this. And if I had to live up to this standard myself, I'd be in despair. 
Yeah, if this was the standard that I was going to be measured against, I'd be completely hopeless. But I do know one person who actually lived this life. And that one person is Jesus. Right? Jesus, we could see clearly from his life on earth when you read the Gospels, that he was filled with the knowledge of God's will. That he had all spiritual wisdom. He knew exactly how to handle even the most complicated and complex situations. He was able to handle with grace and with love, right? And he walked in a manner that was worthy of the Lord. And he was fully pleasing to the Father, right? He's the one that, that perfectly um, illustrated or, um, sorry, demonstrated for us what this looks like. He's the one that did it. And he, he's the one that offered that on our behalf, right? He did that on our behalf because we couldn't live this life. We couldn't live a life that was fully, fully pleasing to him. So how? <laughs> how, can we, how can we share in this? This brings me to, to verse 12. It says that the Father has qualified us. Notice how we, how we changes the language from God and Lord, and now he's talking about the Father who has qualified us, um, and he brought us into the kingdom of his Son. How does a Father qualify you for an inheritance? It's actually quite simple. By adoption, right? The way that a Father qualifies you to share in his inheritance is by adopting you. And that is what, what God has done. And, you know, last week Mezen shared about how we come into the kingdom of God as orphans and with orphan habits. And, and now we see that it's the Father who actually adopts us into his family. And we are no longer orphans. We are now the children of God. But how was he able to do that? Right? How was he able to take people who were so sinful, so full of ourselves, so rebellious? How was he able to, to bring us into his family? Right? How could a, a perfect God bring such rebellious people into his household? Right? And, and that's by his deliverance, by his redemption. So let's quickly read these few verses in detail. We're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it says here that before, before God saved us, we were part of the domain of darkness, or to put it more bluntly, the kingdom of Satan. We were in a kingdom that's in opposition to God. Right? That's our natural state. We all start this life in opposition to God, unwilling to bend our knee before God, unwilling to say, you are God and I am not. Right? That is, and that is the, the challenge of every human heart, that by nature we are enemies of God and we... Um, resent God for his position of being God. And we don't, want, we don't want someone else to be God over our lives. By default, we are in this kingdom of darkness 
that resists God. But, <laughs> but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to redeem us. So here's, here's the metaphor. Right? When you read about redemption, it's, it's a slave market um, or slavery metaphor. Right? There are two, two metaphors in this passage. The one of adoption and the other of slavery. And redemption is a synonym for ransom. In other words, when you redeem a slave or you ransom a, a, someone who's been kidnapped or held against their will, you're paying the price for that person to be freed. And the illustration that I think we're all familiar with is the one of the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt, right? The Exodus. And they were all slaves in Egypt. And God came and he delivered them. He ransomed them out of Egypt, out of the slavery that they were under under in Egypt. And how did he do it? What was the ransom? What was the price for these slaves to be set free? Was the death of the firstborn, right? And throughout Egypt, every firstborn son in every household died, except in the families of the Hebrews, because they had the lamb, right? Remember, God said, every family must slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of their house so that when the angel of death comes past, he will see the blood and pass over the house. And so they actually had a substitute. Not one firstborn son of any Israelite family died that day because they had a substitute, and the substitute was the lamb that died in the place of the firstborn son of the Israelites. And so that's the, that's the Old Testament picture. What we experience in the New Testament and what we experience in Jesus Christ is that Jesus himself is the substitute, right? That lamb pointed forward to Jesus. That's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God, the one who gave himself in place of us, right? Who substituted us so that we can be ransomed out of our slavery where we were enslaved to the kingdom of darkness, enslaved to this kingdom that's hostile to God. And he brought us out. He delivered us. And so we were forgiven, we received forgiveness. We received mercy. Not, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And so we were brought out. But God didn't stop there. He didn't just leave us as you've been freed, but you're still orphans. Right? Now, now we're free orphans. No, he took it one step further. And he adopted us into his own family. And that's grace. Right? Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And so God brought us into his family and he gave us an inheritance, right? He, he restored us in relationship with himself and he made us part of the family of God, right? Now we're no longer hostile to God, but we're his children and he loves us. And, you know, it's, it's a relationship that he established with us that even even though we still make many mistakes, even as children do many things that make their parents angry, he still loves us. That relationship transcends whether or not 
you know, you do the right things or the wrong things. It goes beyond that. And so he brought us into his family and he gave us an inheritance. What is, what is the inheritance of the saints? Many things, but by far the biggest thing is that Jesus himself is our inheritance. He's the one that was given for us. And he gives us restoration, right? In Jesus, there's restoration of our own lives, right? And of our own sinful character. He restores us to relationship with him and in character that grows and becomes more like him, right? Restoration. Even in the gospel, and we'll, we'll still see this in coming weeks. If you've been reading ahead, you might have seen how the gospel is how God brings everything together in Christ and restores everything. It restores communities, restores um, our relationships with one another. And even these bodies of ours, right, that are getting older, there's always, death is always at work in the world, right? There's, there's this integration. That's the result of sin, is this integration, this integration of relationships, this integration of our bodies, even of the environment, Right? We can see in the, in the way that even the environment is being destroyed, there's a result of sin that's disintegration. But Colossians chapter 2 says that in Christ, God is bringing everything back together. He's restoring everything and he's making all things new. Even our bodies will be made new in the resurrection. We'll have restored bodies, perfect bodies. And um, yeah, so... He restores us, and he puts us in a family, right? So part of our inheritance is community. We were privileged this morning to welcome four new members formally into the body. That is part of his inheritance that we get, that we are restored in relationship with one another. And he gives us hope, right? We have hope that even the things that we experience in this life that are broken and that are against what... um, we feel in our deepest heart of hearts how things ought to be, will be restored, and that our deepest longings will be satisfied. Right? That is the hope that we are looking forward to. And lastly, joy. Right? With all of this, we're filled with joy, filled with joy at the work that God is doing in us and among us as a, as a community of believers. So lastly, there's one, one thing I just skipped over very quickly, and that is giving thanks. It binds all of this together, right? And our ability to give thanks is like a, like a barometer of how well we've understood the gospel. The more you understand the gospel, the more you'll be giving thanks to God for it. The more you'll be giving thanks to him for how he's delivered us. If you only understand the gospel a little bit, you'll only give thanks a little bit. But if you, if you understand it deeply, the more deeply you understand it, the more joyfully you'll be able to give thanks to God for the gospel. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.